following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to John chapter 13 today. John chapter 13. As I've done the last few years, I want to use our service today to introduce our theme for the new year. And so this was going to be the big reveal. The screen is going to have the picture of the new theme, but obviously it doesn't. So our theme for 2022 is love one another, and our theme text is going to be John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I want to emphasize loving one another this year, and I recognize that, that you might hear that theme, and, and your response could potentially be to think, well, well, those are some great verses, but why do we need to emphasize love? It doesn't LifePoint already have a strong reputation for loving community? And that's a fair question. I think you know, we consistently hear from visitors to our church that, that our church is a friendly place. And I think, of course, we have holes, like everyone would have holes, but I think for the most part, we do a pretty good job of caring for each other and serving each other. And I think for the most part, our church feels like family. But, so, so the question then is, well, why do we need to give extra emphasis, special emphasis this year to love? So for one, I'd say that it's good for us to remember often that, that true love is, of course, a whole lot more than friendliness. Because we've all probably met people who smile and are really kind to us, to our face, and then behind our back, they say nasty things. They don't actually love us. And even beyond that, I would add that you can have deep relationships with, with people, that, that with good people and still fall short of what Jesus is demanding in this text. We saw this summer in Matthew chapter 5, that that there's no glory before God in loving people who are lovable. Because even the pagans do that. No, we have to shoot higher. And, And Jesus says in this passage that we must pursue a love that bears the unique stamp of His divine power. We want to love each other in such a way that that people would look at us and say, those people must be disciples of Jesus. Because the way they love each other is not normal. And if we're going to love like that, that, then we better never rest on our laurels. No, no, we always will have a long way to go. So so yes, I think it's true that, that love is a strength of our church. But of course we want to keep it that way. And we want to go deeper in our understanding of that love and in our practice of that love. And so, so I'm really excited for what God's going to do this year and, and the things that we're going to emphasize and talk about. And with that in mind, I want to kick off our theme by, by considering uh, this text and, and really to understand verses 34 and 35, we need to see them uh, within the broader context. And so uh, let's read again, uh, picking up in verse 31, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 35. So John chapter 13, verse 31 says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so notice first of all in verses 31 and 32, God's glory in the cross. Now, now as always, when you look at a passage of Scripture, context is essential for, for appreciating the meaning. And that is certainly true here. So specifically, uh, Jesus speaks the words of this text in the upper room only hours before His crucifixion. So He has just instituted the Lord's Supper, which which celebrated uh, a minute ago. And and He did so to remind His disciples of the incredible sacrifice that He is about to make. And not just that, John 13 tells us that He illustrated the love of the cross by getting down on his feet, on his knees, and washing his disciples' feet. And of course then, John 13 tells us that in a stunning twist after these very significant moments, he predicts Judas's betrayal. And then he simply commands Judas in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. And Judas obeys. Judas walks out of the room and he goes to visit the authorities and to set into motion the brutal events which will culminate in the crucifixion. And verse 31 of our text says that after Judas' departure to betray Jesus, that's the occasion for this to take place. He says again, now when he, speaking of Judas, had gone out, Jesus begins to speak. And I'd like to emphasize three truths from what Jesus goes on to say in verses 31 and 32. And the first is, is that the subject... Uh, of these verses is the cross. And it doesn't seem like this thing is... There we go. The subject of these verses is the cross. Now, now on their own, you, when you read through verses 31 and 32, they might sound a bit confusing. You know, so what in the world is Jesus talking about when, when He's talking uh, about glory here and, and Him being glorified and the Father glorifying Him and, and all this stuff? Well, well, the context, though, clearly indicates that, that when He's talking here uh, about Him being glorified and the Father being glorified, that he is talking about the cross. And by extension, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to glory in heaven. And as well, I think we know that he's talking about his suffering because he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which almost always in the Gospels, he uses that reference when talking about his suffering. So Jesus is saying here that both himself and His Father will be glorified through the cross. So, so just imagine what's going through Jesus' mind here. I mean, he fully understands what Judas is doing while he's talking to the disciples. And he fully understands all that he is about to suffer on the cross. And in that moment, and, you know, and that had to be just excruciatingly heavy for him to consider. To know, to to grieve over Judas, to know what he's about to suffer. And if I were in Jesus' shoes, and if you were in Jesus' shoes, what would your response be? I mean, you'd probably be filled with self-pity. 
You'd want to groan and complain about how difficult things are. But not Jesus. Now, instead of those things, he, he begins verse 31 by saying in a very positive note, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. So, so he sees past the shame of the cross and he sees that God is going to be glorified in His death. Now, of course, that would have been a shocking expectation for people in Jesus' day. Because there wasn't much glory in crucifixion. And the Romans had designed crucifixion to, to be a shameful, humiliating, degrading event. And, and they were pretty good at pulling that off. And yet Jesus says that, that God will be glorified in the cross. Now the question then is, well, how? How will God be glorified in the cross? And I think the first answer is, is that the cross displayed God's love. You know, so later in the same speech, in John chapter 15, Jesus will say, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus set the definitive example of that sacrificial love in the cross. We just celebrate the fact that, that when he died on the cross, he broke his body and he shed his blood. He did those things. That, that, that we might be saved. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And, and so the New Testament consistently teaches that the cross set the standard of God's love. Now John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And how do we know that love? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we know that God loves us? How do we know what love is? You know, you don't look to the latest movie or bestseller or, or the song on the top of the charts to find out what love really is. No, no, we look to the cross. And the cross teaches us that, that love is a whole lot more than, than a feeling of attraction or, or a warm feeling in my bosom, so to speak. No, Jesus says that love is defined in what He did for us. He moved towards us. He sacrificed Himself. And, and we'll say a whole lot more about that as we go. But, but even more important than just that, that, that He uh, defined love for us in the cross, here in this context He's saying, that the cross also glorifies God. And it glorifies God by, by displaying to us the nature of God's love. And he says here, the Son of Man is glorified. So, so Jesus is saying that God will be glorified in the cross by displaying His love. And it's not just that, that Jesus will be glorified. He, he says that God will be glorified as well in Christ. So, so we don't just know that Jesus loves us in the cross. Again, John 3.16 says we know that the Father loves us because He sent His Son to die. And, and folks, that is so important because there are few things that are more precious in life than to know the love of God in Christ. And, and God gloriously manifested this incredible love by, by sending His Son to die for us. And so by looking at the cross, we know 
that God loves us. We know it. And we have no reason to question it. And we also know the incredible extent of that love. You know, it's not just that God loved us in part or 50% or 60%. No, God made the ultimate sacrifice for us in the cross. So God glorified Himself in the cross by displaying for us His incredible love. And so if there's anyone here today that has never believed on Jesus for salvation, and you know that God is love, but you have never experienced that love through a personal relationship with Jesus, And again, John chapter 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, so, So that verse tells us that all of us are born into this world perishing. We are born dying. But Jesus died so that your sins could be removed and so that you could be secure in Christ and live forever in Him. And so if you've never believed on Christ, and the love of God is just something in theory to you, not something that you know for yourself, then we would love to talk with you today about how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that Christ is your Savior. And if you are saved, you should rejoice every day in the love that you have received in the cross. We know love fundamentally because of what Jesus did for us. And that is a precious anchor through all the ups and downs of life. Do you ever go through times and go through experiences where you begin to question the goodness of God's purpose? Is God just trying to make me miserable? Is He just trying to make my life hard? And we never have to ask those questions because we know that God loves us. And we know His purpose is good because we can look at the cross and see that God is love. And then one other truth that we need to emphasize from verse 32 is that the cross also vindicated Christ. So so again, verse 32 says, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Now now again, the primary focus of verse 32 is again the display of God's love in the cross. But, But the language of verse 32 I think also points beyond the cross as well, to Jesus' resurrection from the dead and His ascension to glory and to the full restoration of the glory that He enjoyed before the incarnation. So in other words, when it says there in particular that the Father will glorify Jesus immediately, what He's saying is that the Father glorified Christ and He demonstrated His acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice by raising Him from the dead, and by seating Him at His own right hand with glory and authority. Now you might think, well, what, what's that have to do with loving one another? And it's significant for, for, that, for the command that follows because it means that Jesus has the right to give us the command that's coming. Now, so when He says in verse 34, love one another, it's not just a good suggestion if you've got time and nothing in your calendar. No, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is at the right hand of God. So when He says to you, love one another, we must obey. This is God's authoritative command. So so in sum, verses 31 and 32 describe God's glory in the cross. And on the cross, Jesus on the one hand set the standard of God's love. 
He proved to us, He demonstrated for us what it is to love. And in His resurrection, He gained the authority to demand that love from us. But then verse 33 follows by talking about the absence of God's glory. And notice here the contrast, all right, between verses 31 and 32 and verse 33. So, so verses 31 and 32 are, are pretty positive, right? I mean, Jesus just said that, that he is about to glorify the Father and the Father is going to glorify him. But then Jesus follows with what had to be an absolutely head scratching downer for his disciples. He says in verse 33, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, of course, Jesus is talking here about his ascension to heaven. And so for three years, I mean, think about the fact that for three years, the disciples had lived with Jesus. They had watched his every move. They'd watched his reactions. They had heard him teach. They had seen him perform stunning miracles. And so John chapter 1 tells us that they beheld the glory of God in Christ in a way that no one had seen the glory of God since the Garden of Eden. It's an incredible privilege. And John would later say about this privilege in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, what was speaking here of Jesus, what was from the beginning, what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. I mean, what an incredible experience. You ever get jealous of the disciples? Like, like John says, we saw, we touched, we experienced the glory of God, the, the word of life in the person of Jesus. But now in verse 33, Jesus says, all of that is about to go away. I'm leaving. I'm going back to heaven. So in just a little over 40 days, the word of life is going to disappear. He's going to go to glory. But, but if that's the case, then that's a problem for us. Because how are people going to continue to see and experience God's glory until the second coming. Now, now certainly, we, we know God fundamentally through the Word. But, but, but how can people in our day experience, how, how can they see and touch and hear the Word of life while well, Jesus is in heaven? And Jesus answers in verses 34 and 35, where he describes God's glory in the church. Now, of course, the center of verses 34 and 35 is the command in verse 34 to love one another. And we're going to see throughout the year that this command lays an important foundation for a large swath of the New Testament, what we oftentimes call the one another commands. There's lots of commands in the New Testament about loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, all those things. And so, and so this is a very important command, and we need to take our time to really understand what Jesus means. So notice first that Jesus calls this a new commandment. A new commandment. Now, now frankly, that, that's probably a bit surprising to us, right? Like, why would Jesus call the command to love one another a new command? Because 
I mean, at this point in time, when he spoke, it was over 1,400 years ago that Moses had said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just a couple of days earlier, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus had said that that was the second great commandment. So, so in what sense is this a new commandment? I think there's two ways this is new. The first is, is that Jesus is thinking of a new context. He is thinking of the church. Now, now we know that, that He's thinking of the church here because He tells His disciples, Right? who are going to found the church. So, so they stand, they represent the, the, the church in the church age. He is telling them not simply to love their neighbor, speaking of people in general, he is telling his disciples to love one another. So, so he is clearly looking forward to the new community of the church. So Jesus is specifically commanding the church to share a unique, special love each other. Now again, we're going to talk throughout the year about about what that means and and talk about various ways that that this love should be unique. But I think I, I like to emphasize often that one of the particular ways that this love is unique is that Christian love within the church unites people who normally don't get along. It unites people of, of different social and economic and ethnic and political groups. In Colossians chapter 3, Verse 11 says of Christians that we share a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave. And those three terms speak of groups that would have been at the bottom of the social stratosphere. As well, freemen, though. But Christ is all and in all. So when people look at the church, they should see a diversity of love. That we don't love each other because we're all the same age. Or because we all have the same hobbies. Or because we all come from the same culture. No, we display the power of God by crossing social barriers that normally divide people and replacing them with a unified, safe community. For everyone who is in Christ and walking in obedience to His will. So so Jesus is saying that one of the most outstanding qualities of the church should be our sense of community or our sense of family. And and we need that emphasis because because, we live in a day where a lot of American Christians think of the church purely in terms of of the, of the universal church, you know, that, that, that we're a part of this worldwide, you know, family of God. And so, you know, going to church can be as simple as turning on your TV and watching Chuck Stanley or David Jeremiah or someone else. And for a lot of people, that's what it means to go to church. You know, and so they're participating in some you know, global, you know, universal family of God by watching a guy on TV. You know, and even when we think of the local church, a lot of people think of the local church as just an event that I attend. You know, I show up, I watch a performance, and then I go home. And that's how we think of church. But that's not how Jesus imagines the church. He created LifePoint to be a family that is deeply invested in each other because we share a, a, a vital bond in Christ. We Love one another. So so he's thinking here of a new community 
a new context, and as well, this commandment is new because Jesus is thinking of a new example himself. So, so notice in verse 34 that an important aspect of this command is he says, Love one another even as I have loved you. So, love in the church is new in the sense that it is patterned after our master. It's patterned after Jesus. So let's talk about the pattern of love that Jesus set. I mean, when He says, as I have loved you, we should first of all remember the example that He just set earlier in the chapter. So, so back up and look at what, Jesus, what is said for us in verses 3 through 15. John 13, verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that His Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel. He girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What do I what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I have done. Now, what's particularly significant about these verses is what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. That, that the Master, that the Son of God, humbled Himself and became our servant. And He commands us to follow His example. And then He turns around in verse 34 and tells us to love one another as He has loved us. So, so first of all, that the pattern of love that, that we need to follow is that we need to follow Jesus' pattern of humility and how He humbled Himself in washing His disciples' feet. I remember being told in college that the way you know if you are a servant is how you respond when you are treated like one. And I've always appreciated that statement because it's convicting, right? Like when I get treated like a servant, I want people to know I'm really important. So, so how do you respond when, when, when you are expected to do the dirty work of ministry without any recognition or any glory? You know, what's your attitude? If you're, you're here at the church scrubbing dishes or changing diapers or pulling weeds while other people are, are having a good time and getting all the attention, do you bristle at being a servant? Or do you rejoice in the opportunity? You know, Jesus didn't bristle. Instead, there at the Last Supper, hours before His crucifixion, when everyone should have been serving Him, He grabbed a towel, He got down on His knees, and He washed the dirty, smelly feet of His disciples. 
And Jesus did this because He knew that vital, loving community requires that same kind of love. So I want to challenge you. Don't be so consumed with yourself that you never notice the needs of people around you. No, embrace the humility of Christ. See yourself as a servant. And find your joy, not in being glorified, but in serving others and washing their feet. Do it, you know, probably for the most part, not, not literally, alright? I think we're all thankful that we don't wash feet, literally. But, but let's be humble like Jesus. And then secondly, we need to imitate His example of sacrifice. And considering here the fact that Jesus just instituted the Lord's Supper, right? And the next day He is going to die on the cross, then we ought to assume that when He says, love as I have loved you, that, that He is also calling us to imitate the sacrificial love that He demonstrated on the cross. And so specifically, Jesus showed us in the cross that love is a lot more than, than a, again, a strong feeling of attraction. You know, that, that's what our world thinks, right? That, that love is a feeling, a, a desire for something. No, He showed us that, that genuine love is, is, is moving towards other people for their good. You know, it, it's, it's, it's giving myself sacrificially with, with no regard for myself, my rights, or my glory. So among other things, the church should be different from the world in the sense that we eagerly and sacrificially care for each other. You know, we are glad to get up early, to stay up late, we, we, we are glad to give of our time and give of our money. We open ourselves up to the heartache and the disappointment of investing in people. And, and, and so we do all of it because we love people. So, so I want to ask you to consider your involvement in this church. Do you love the body of Christ here at LifePoint like Jesus loved you? Do you invest in people? Are you involved in people's lives in such a way that you see needs, you recognize opportunities, and you joyfully serve your fellow Christian? Now, when's the last time that you really made yourself uncomfortable? That you really inconvenienced yourself to serve a brother in Christ? But Jesus commands us to love our brothers with a sacrificial love that Christ displayed for us when He died for our sins. And then third, we, we are to imitate Jesus' grace. And what I mean by this is that Jesus never demanded that we earn His love as demonstrated in the cross. No, He loved us, as we read earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners. And that's so important, and it's, it's a big part of what makes the church unique. You know, that, that we don't love people because they have something in them that attracts us to them. No, we love them because Christ loved us. And, and so we don't love each other because we are so lovable, because we all have our act perfectly together, and because you know, we've done so much to deserve it. We don't just simply scratch your back because you scratched mine. No. If you are a mature Christian, you live every day of your life with the humble awareness that God loved me when I was in sin. 
and He graciously bestowed on me a kindness that I did not deserve. And so if I live that way, if I live every day with a humble awareness of my sin before God and His marvelous grace, then then, then I will also look at others through a lens of the same grace. And I will give of myself freely and generously just as God gave to me. And so I pray that God would fill us as a church with, with, that, with an ever-increasing amazement at the grace that God showed to a sinner like me. And so I must show that same grace and kindness to others. Folks, that makes all the difference. And then finally, notice in verse 34 what the end result, or excuse me, verse 35, what the end result of all of this will be. Verse 35 says, By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this really is just an amazing verse when you look at it in the the context of the paragraph as a whole. So, So remember that Jesus began by saying that God's love was about to be glorified through the sacrifice of Christ. But then He said that God's love in Christ was going to depart. It was going to ascend to heaven and sit down at His right hand. And as I said a moment ago, that's a problem. Because humanity needs an example. But because the humble, generous, sacrificial love of Jesus is not what we normally experience in this world, right? And most people only know a shadow of the true love that God demonstrated to us in the cross. So the question that is hanging at the end of verse 33 is, well, how will they know this love? How will they see God glorified? How will they see and handle and touch the glory of God during the age between Christ's first and second coming? And what's the answer? The incredible answer is, is that the world will continue to see this love of God as the church obeys this command and loves one another. I mean, that's what he means there in verse 35. So so when an unbeliever walks into the doors of life point, you know, watches how how we talk with each other, how we fellowship. You know, if an unbeliever were to show up at one of our fellowship events, or or an unbeliever would happen to be around when when a a member of our church has a need and, and other church members show up to meet that need, that when unbelievers watch our life as a church, they should see a love that stands out as different from what they see anywhere else. They should see God's love being glorified through us. And when they see that happening, they're going to think, those people have something special. Those people have a power in them. They have been transformed into something that is different from how I live or different from how most people are. Those people have been with Jesus. And when you really ponder what Jesus is saying there, then you can't help but think, wow, God has given us an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. So, So we live in a world that is plagued by darkness and grief and sorrow and violence and and all sorts of division. God has called the church to be a city set on a hill. A light where the world can see 
the love of God displayed and in how we live together as a body. I mean, what a glorious opportunity. But as well, it's an incredible responsibility. And it's, this, it's easier said than done, right? Because selfishness is deeply embedded in every one of us. And even the most loving saints are sometimes going to struggle to love the way Jesus did. I mean, I guarantee that there have been many times that, that if an unbeliever were to look at my life and look at me in this moment, they would not think, wow, he's loving like Jesus. They would think, wow, he's a sinner like I am. And so we all have a long ways to go. And even in a church like LifePoint, where, where I think it's fair to say that, that we probably do a better job than most at, at really loving and caring for each other, we still have a long ways to go. And we ought to be sobered by Jesus' vision here. I mean, are we, do people, is the glory of God, is the love of God manifested to our community in how we love each other? So every one of us should ask today, would an unbeliever know that I am a disciple of Christ based on how I love the people of God? Would that just be immediately obvious to them? Or, or if they looked at you, looked at your life, your participation in the people of, of the church, would they say, well, that's not much different than how I live or how I give myself. I mean, do I glorify the love of Christ and how I invest in the people of God? And examine yourself. You know, see areas where you need to grow, areas where you need to change, do something different, confess it to God. And then cry out to Him for grace to live out His will. So, so what a fitting challenge for us to consider after observing the Lord's Supper earlier in the service. You know, that, that early in the service we remembered what Jesus did for us on the cross. And now Jesus challenges us to follow in His steps. But, but let's not forget as well, what happened after Jesus died. That, that Jesus, after He died, He rose again. And so, we have the power to do this. Like, like, you might look at some other people, even in this room, and think, there's no way I can love Him. There's no way I could ever wash that guy's feet. And not just because they're disgusting. You think there's no way I could do that. Well, the reality is, you can. Because if you're in Christ, you are a new creature and you are able to love. And it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He sits in glory and in power over the church. So loving one another in the church is not just a suggestion. And it's not only a command for extroverts who've got lots of time and, and, and just really get a lot, you know, get a buzz out of, of being with people and investing in people. No, this command is for every Christian. All of us are to love one another and invest in each other the way God loved us and invested in us. And so by God's grace, I'm excited to see what God is going to do this year to make us disciples who display the love of God and who really do care well for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for the example of Jesus. And we thank You 
that He showed us what genuine love is by giving Himself on the cross. And Father, I pray that this church would exemplify, would would reflect, would display the love that we have received. And and God, I pray, Lord, that You would would work in our midst and that, Lord, we we would all examine ourselves, examine where we need to grow. And Father, I pray that You would make us a light that displays the glory of God both to the world outside and to one another. And Father, I pray that in this coming year that we would really grow in this area and not just in the areas that are easy and convenient, but in the areas that are hard and painful and costly. And so God, we we, we thank You in advance for what You will do and we pray that You would continue to sanctify us and grow us into the image of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.